The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? The Argentinian football star Lionel Messi has been trending on Weibo and, unfortunately, not for good reason. It all started when Messi sat out a match in Hong Kong earlier this month. His reasoning that he was injured wasn't good enough for some fans, and keyboard nationalists quickly took offence when Messi played in Japan only a few days later. The furore has dominated Chinese social media over the last few weeks, and even led to the cancellation of some upcoming Chinese matches with the Argentinian national team, as authorities demanded an apology. What a mess. But beyond its seeming triviality, this episode tells us something about the nature of Chinese online nationalism, I think, and it might also shed light on how football works in China. After all, why is it that this country, which is so good at so many things, has still failed to turn out a competitive national team? This is the multi-billion yuan question that obsesses football fans within and outside of China. Joining me on the episode this week is Cameron Wilson, an expert on Chinese football and founder of the Wild East Football Blog, who has lived in China for almost two decades. Cameron, welcome to Chinese Whispers. Good to be here, thank you. Should we start with the mess surrounding Lionel Messi? Um, it all started earlier this month when Messi was meant to play in Hong Kong. Tell us what happened. So he was meant to play for Inter Miami, which is his MLS team based in the States. But unfortunately, he was injured and he didn't play in the game, which led to a lot of very angry spectators who had paid for their tickets solely for the reason to watch Messi. So this caused a bit of a furore and the end result is that the Chinese FA and the actually CCTV5, China State Broadcast, has actually basically banned, basically cancelled Messi. So all mentions of him have been scrubbed from the CFA website and he's not on any kind of highlights on cctv anymore so it's, it's all a little bit silly <laughs> you can understand the fan disappointment but as you say he, he's become cancelled and it's also it's not just the authorities cancelling him is it it's on weibo on chinese social media you know that has been a huge backlash and probably not helped by the fact that messi did play in japan a few days later and people pointing that towards saying that you know, this must be a medical miracle if he was able to play in japan a few days later but not in hong kong tell us about that social media side of things yeah i've been following that it's it's really very interesting. I think that it's quite strange to see someone who is, he's like a, a football god. I mean, he's hes just as popular in China as anywhere, more so. To, to see fans kind of change their opinion about him over something which outside of China would be perceived as something not really a big deal. But I mean, I've seen things like, I mean, I'm like a, like a Shanghai, Shanghai fan. Um, so I've got plenty of football fans on my, my social media and they're calling him things like uh, Messi go and stuff like that, like Messi, Messi dog, which is like, as, as you know, is like a, um, a, a, a very stereotypical Chinese insult. To see the kind of, some of the vitriol seems really, even by China's standards of taking offence and being oversensitive, it's it's quite 
I'm not sure how to how to describe it. It's just such a really silly overreaction. Mm. And it's become quite political as well, hasn't it? Because because Hong Kong officials have officially demanded an explanation from Messi. Um, the Global Times, our favourite nationalistic tabloid, has alleged that Messi was doing it because of he was orchestrated by external forces. <laughs> Language that's us- usually reserved for pro-democracy protests rather than a footballer sitting out of a football game. You, you mentioned yeah. they use the word dog as well. And often you, you hear that in terms of like American dog for example. So it becomes, it's become a nationalistic point as well, hasn't it? It has, which is, I would love to say I'm surprised, but I'm not. It's, it really says a lot about where China's at at the present time. Um, you'll know all about the kind of the wolf warrior diplomacy, that kind of policy of being very aggressive in, in international communications. That is something which has really affected so much of China's external communication with the outside world. And it's also interesting to see Hong Kong be pulled into this. Hong Kong football wise is is a separate world from from China because from the mainland China because they have their own league, they have their own national team. So I think traditionally it's always been these things have kind of been separate. But when you see the Global Times get involved, which is I would say the best way to describe it to your listeners is the Global Times is I guess the closest thing the UK has is probably the Sun, something like that. You know, it's not it's it's not a kind of a very discerning or or deep publication. It's basically a government mouthpiece. To see them get involved and then to link the issue to China-Japan relations is its pretty sad, to be honest, because it's not really anything to do with that. I'm pretty sure Messi didn't wake up and think, oh, I'm going to pretend I'm injured just to you know, make Chinese people <laughs> angry at Japan. I'm, I'm going to play in Japan a few days later just to, just to rile China. It's, it's obviously not the case. And, and angry at Argentina as well, Messi's country of origin, because there's some Chinese netizens who have come out on Weibo who to troll the Argentinian embassy and saying that actually they want the British to, to, to have control of the Falklands, you know, bringing into all sorts of political issues in here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's best not to. I mean, personally, I never take comments online that seriously. I mean, it is, it is ridiculous. I mean, obviously, nobody would really, nobody right thinking would really take that too seriously. But it, it, there is a lot of things said in China. And the point to make about China is that, you know, the internet, when you see comments like that, when they get highlighted on social media or when they're allowed to stand, there's like, you know, the, the powers that be know that these, they have the power to censor these things. And, you know, if they don't, it's usually suggestive that there's some level of agreement or some kind of, I don't know, some kind of tacit gesture that, yeah, the Chinese people are unhappy and everyone should know about it. You seem pretty convinced that it was a medical injury. I, I, that kind of answers my next question, was just, just, do we know anything about Messi's political opinions at all? Because I, I wouldn't be surprised if some sports people from across the world had negative views about China under the CCP. You know, that, that wouldn't be a controversial opinion for them to hold. Are we sure that Messi really didn't do it for political reasons as a, as a sign of protest? Especially, as you say, I mean, Hong Kong is a deeply controversial city in recent years. Yeah, I mean, I'm not familiar with Messi's political views. I'm not even sure if he, what they are or if he has any strongly held views. But yeah, I mean, obviously China's been involved. China, politics and sport, basically everything in China is affected by politics. One way or another, it touches every aspect of life here. You just need to, I mean, let, let me let me draw an illustration, right? So can you imagine if, if, if Inter Miami came to the UK in the summertime to play an exhibition game and he was supposed to play, say, say let's say they're going to play Newcastle, 
at the last minute, Messi didn't play and everyone in Newcastle bought tickets. Do you, I mean, do you really think anybody would be that bothered about it? Okay, it's a bit of a silly example because nobody in the UK is the really... We've, we've got football and seeing Messi is not as big a deal for people in Europe or the UK as it would be in, in, in China. But my point I'm making is that the standards that they... The thought process here is very different. It's like the, the fact that the CCTV5 and the state media and then the Global Times and all these English language media have got involved about something which in most other places wouldn't even barely get a mention in, in the press. It illustrates a lot of how the information environment in China is very, very diff- different. Also suggests that things are politicised on purpose. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that analysis of the top-down nature of things. But I also think that there is a slightly more grassroots thing happening here, a bottom-up, where there does seem to be a contingency of people on Chinese social media who are just so keen to find offence at everything that they see. And, you know, to some extent, I'm sure this happens in other countries too. In the UK, for example, we have the culture wars and people on both sides seem very eager to look for things that anger them. But I guess on in China, my point is that the axis is along nationalistic lines rather than any cultural lines for this kind of online outrage. And it's also important to say probably that a lot of Chinese people have supported Messi online. They have criticised the people who are too quick to take offence. And so there is a real debate going on about this. Um, And Cameron, I just wanted to ask you as well, do you think this has cut through to beyond just the football fans itself? I mean, I um, had a conversation with my mum uh, <laughs> recently about this as well. I mean, she she doesn't know anything about football. She doesn't care about football. But she asked me, you know, have you heard about the messy thing? So would you say of the people around you that it has cut through to beyond just the football world? Uh, I'd say it has to some extent, which is in some ways, it's very ironic because the the, the, the problem in China is that with football is that it's not, it's, it's a subculture. So, for example, if you if you take your average person in Europe, right, even if you don't like football, even if you hate football or you think, oh, the World Cup's on again, or it's terrible, or, or football until I hate it, they know what football is, they know when the teams are playing, they know, the, they know what the, the team's identity is, they know the local team's name, everything, because it's part of the fabric of society. But in China, it's not like this. It's just so far off people's radar. Mm. I mean, for example, one as an experiment one time, I asked my mother-in-law, who's Shahanese and she's in her 60s, I asked her, you know, you, you call your, you know, I said mama, you know, you call your mother-in-law mother, which is it's another thing entirely. But I said to her, do you know who Maradona is? And she said, yeah, that's that guy with blonde hair, right? I was like, nah. <laughs> so, but she actually, it turned out she'd confused him with Beckham. But the point is, she'd only heard of the superstars. So when people hear of the superstars, People are aware of superstars and they're aware of Messi, but it's because of his because of Messi's celebrity and his stardom that this whole thing happened. It's actually got very little to do with football, and that's actually the crux of the issue about football in China as a whole. Well, yeah, I mean, Cameron, I guess it must be quite usual for fans to buy tickets to see a match, but there's no guarantee that your favourite player is ever going to play, right? I mean, that's just the way the game works. People sit on the bench sometimes, and that that's just what happens. It is, and I've I've always been a um, in, in my work, I've always been a, a huge advocate for local football, you know, encouraging people to support the local team regardless of the technical standard or the size of the club, or, or you know, to, to try to get involved in a, in, a, in a club which is rooted in a community. And obviously, these exhibition games where teams from overseas, typically big clubs, but in this case, Inter Miami is a new club which is not from a, a typical football world pair. But the point is, it's corporate football and it's, it's messy. When Messi comes to China, it's like... 
people are not paying to see if it's not anything about football. Even the team who Inter Miami played against was a Hong Kong 11. It was a Hong Kong select. It wasn't even an actual bona fide team. It was just a bunch of, it was basically a team made up of players who played in Hong Kong. So in that respect, it's, it's just nakedly a, an exhibition game. You know what, I guess you can say there's nothing wrong with that, but at the end of the day, if you're paying to see this, if you're paying to see Messi, you're watching a football match. Football is inherently a team game. It's not about one player. So anyone who's a genuine fan would understand that there's always a chance the player might not appear for whatever reason. So to be honest, it's hard to have a lot of sympathy, although I understand people's feeling about it. Mm. What does that tell you about the the nature of Chinese football fandom? You've been there for so many years and you've blogged on Chinese football for for many, many years too. Are there differences between Chinese fans and fans elsewhere, do you think? It's complicated. There's there's basically two two strata. So you have your fans of local teams who are part of the subculture, as I call it. These clubs can have massive... They can have pretty big uh, attendances. For example, I'll go to a game in Shanghai. There's 20,000, 30,000 people there. I mean, a lot of clubs in, in the UK would be happy with that attendance. But obviously, as a percentage of China's population, that's uh, dropping the bucket. So that's why it's, it's a subculture. It's like the people who are into it, they're really into it. So your, your fans at Shanghai, uh, Shenhua or Beijing, Guan, like these clubs are just as good in terms of the fan culture and the level of support they have for the club. But this exists in a bubble. Then the second strata you have is your people who, they just like um, Messi or they like Ronaldo or they like Man United or they like AC Milan or the big the big teams from Europe and, and so on and so forth. And these fans are not, they're not really into football. They're just into whoever's famous or whoever's got the celebrity. So in that regard, it's it's important to make that distinction between the two different groups. And of course, it's not black and white. There's people who could be both or a combination of one or another. It must not help the situation of football being popular in China when you consider how bad the Chinese football team is. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a running joke in, in Chinese society where whenever something you want to criticise an organisation or institution for doing something incompetent, you might compare them to the Chinese football team, for example, and that's a running joke. So everyone knows that the Chinese football team is pretty bad. So that can't help Chinese fans getting involved. It's a, it's a good observation. It's a true observation. But the interesting thing is, I mean, you know China, right? China is extremely competitive socially. And it's quite conformist so that it takes a special kind of person, a special kind of Chinese person to kind of go against the grain in Chinese society, to go against this narrative that Chinese football sucks and that you should watch other sports or other football teams instead. So when you get, when you penetrate the kind of the world of Chinese fans who support Chinese clubs, you've got a very, very interesting demographic, a very, a group which contrasts somewhat with the rest of Chinese society. So once you, when, once you kind of get into that, there's, there's a great many things you can learn. And, but they're very much, um, it's like, they are by nature, they are more likely to be optimistic people because of the type of people who it attracts. So they're quite tolerant of it. They're like, yeah, well, our team sucks, but we're going to support them anyway because one day they'll get better. And that's the same as any football fan who supports a team who's not that good. <laughs> Yeah, I can, I can imagine that. But can you expand on that a little bit more? Are you saying that the Chinese football team isn't as bad as it looks on paper? Because according to the 2022 FIFA ranking, the Chinese team was ranked internationally at 78th between Uzbekistan and Gabon. I would say the Chinese team is definitely is very poor. I mean, if, if you want to get if you want to get into the discussion of why Chinese football sucks, that is 
I mean, you could write, you could have like a podcast for every single element. I mean, obviously the team, the results don't lie. The team is very poor. There's, there's, there's a whole host of reasons for it. The basic, mode, the basic reason is the culture. And there's also a problem in terms of the, the perception or the understanding of why Chinese football is so unsuccessful. Because in China, because it's not a tradition of football, there's a lack of soft skills and the infrastructure. When I say infrastructure, I don't mean pitches. I mean, I mean the cultural things. For example, just thinking that football is a good thing for your kid to do. Or volunteering to give up your time to be to run a kids football team or or anything like this, um, and then there's a lack of a pool of of football and technical know how in order to 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 mm. develop the players and 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 the things which need to happen to make the the, the sport a success. But the the main reason is basically that there's just not any space in Chinese society physically or in terms of time and resources for Chinese parents to let their kids dedicate themselves to pursuing a career in football. That is the most basic and most fundamental reason in in my view. I think that's a totally fascinating point because I think that (laughs) anecdotally, certainly, I can't imagine many Chinese parents who'd want their child to pursue football as anything more than a hobby because of how academically driven a lot of parenting is. And also because of the, I think, the the status that's associated with many sports is not as high as academia. But then, Cameron, how does it work compared to China's success in other sporting areas like the Olympics? You know, China wins gold medals like anything. You know, why do you think, I mean, this is, we're all kind of speculating here a little bit, but why does football not hold that kind of prestigious position for some parents as, you know, other sports might have? I noticed you said anecdotally a minute ago in an apologetic tone, but actually everything in China is pretty anecdotal, to be honest, because it's very difficult to penetrate and there's there's very little, there's, there's a lack of transparency and a lack of forthrightness in general. But here we are. I would say that, your question is basically why is China good at Olympic sports? The simple reason is there's there's two main main things. The simple reason is that the training way for Olympic sports is very much if you get identified as having a particular aptitude when you're a kid, then you'll be kind of whisked out of the system or whatever whatever environment this aptitude is discovered in. Say for example, you're playing at school, they'll take you off and put you in like a basically a specialized program for to all intents and purposes, uh, an Olympic gold medal factory, Olympic gold medal winner factory. But this this doesn't work very well for football for two reasons. One is that football is a team sport, so you really need other people in order to progress and develop optimally. And the second thing, which is not really picked up on, is China's um, Olympic sports training system is it's basically an elite an elite training system. So for example, if you look at football, so you had like um Jamie Vardy, for example, played for England a few years ago. He, and he he didn't really break through into I don't think he played in the premiership until he was twenty five or even maybe even older. Before that, he was obviously had potential but it never blossomed. So what happens when you take in China you take all the kids out of the you take the kids who are good at football when they're like 
I don't know, seven or eight, or he's very young, taking him out of the system, that decreases the average level of all the other of the pool of football of of of, of, um, of opponents that these kids have. So basically, all the kids who just are average when they're young, they just play against other kids who are average. So they don't get the chance to kind of hone their skills against better players. And these people just fall behind. There's probably a Messi in China right now. Someday, there's probably someday who could have been as good as Messi, but he's probably working in a factory mm. or, or in an office somewhere because he just never got the chance. I've got another theory I want to run, run it past you, which is that the Olympics, with the way it's set up, the reason for it being set up, it's always been about world peace and countries getting along with each other and in that sense it's always been a little bit political and so the Chinese see it as a way of demonstrating China's soft power on the global stage which we saw in 2008 when it hosted it but also just in every single Olympic Games it's a chance to show off China to other countries whereas maybe something like football it's a bit more niche it's not like the sporting equivalent of the UN which in some ways the Olympics is I don't know how you think that theory lies and and, you know that the implication of that is that if the government wants to to put attention on something the system is geared towards it that's why the olympics the chinese are so much better at than football that's just a theory I, th- I think there's some truth in that definitely i would say the olympics has more it's probably perceived in a more positive way in general um by chinese people at large just maybe more prestige but that said football is the global sport and the soft power opportunities for china and that are, are, are massive so in that in that regard Football's probably got more potential that way, but of course, if you aren't good at it, then of course you're going to focus on what you are good at, which is why China puts such emphasis on like the 2008 Olympics and then just last year with the Winter Olympics too. So that that's true. But the other thing I'd say is that the there's there's such a perception gap in the discussion about Chinese football because mm. there's basically this link made between economic development and football progress which I don't actually think bears out in the real world. You could probably argue there's a link for elite football. So you can look at English club sides or European clubs, Germany, France, Italy, countries which are strong economically and they their clubs have the wherewithal, the financial wherewithal to, to accumulate the best players. But if you go further down the football pyramid, if you go further down the system into grassroots, countries which produce great players don't necessarily have strong economies. There's, there's just so many examples. You look at, like, for example, Brazil and Argentina, two countries which are um, economically would be middling pairs at best. But, you know, there's, there's nobody saying, a lot of people look at China and they say, well, China's been so successful in, in, in doing this and doing that. They've, um, the economy has they've lifted millions out of poverty and the economy's infrastructure is amazing. And there's been obvious amazing progress in China on that front. Why can't they be good at football? But can you give me an example of a country which was very strong economically and then just transformed its football in a, in a short period of time? I, I can't think of one. So, so in that regard, that that's an argument which is made all the time, which I think is not, it's not actually relevant. Um, the other thing is that most of the discussion about about Chinese football is basically internationally is shaped by Western journalists who are actually I find most of the reporting in China is actually done in very good faith. A lot of the criticism of Western journalism, I think, is very is political and it's not it's very exaggerated but the main narrative Chinese football is looked at is from a business narrative and a lot of business reporters they there could be a great reporter but may not really understand football that well so I think that actually colours the, the understanding of, of the whole issue. Can you expand on that what do you think western journalists get wrong when they report on Chinese football? 
just to focus on, like, like the focus is mentioned a minute ago, the, the attempt to explain China through Chinese football through economics and say, well, what, China's so successful at everything else. Why is it not? Why is it not good at football? Why mm. should it be good at football? Because it's it's been economically successful. Why is it that I've been saying for years, like the reason Chinese football is not good is is because of culture. But that that narrative's never really it's it's very underreported. Yeah, sure. I mean, in, in doing research for this podcast as well, I definitely saw what you mentioned, which is a lot of the reporting is about the corruption scandals re- um, evolving around the um, the world, the huge amounts of money sloshing around. There's this figure that often gets trotted out that at one point there was more money in the Chinese Super League than the Premier League. So people tend to think that it's corruption or guanxi networks uh, pulling strings that that means Chinese football isn't meritocratic. And so it gets in gets you into mm. a situation where your team is not actually that good because it's not meritocratically chosen. But you're saying to me now that you think culture is a more fundamental point to understand why Chinese football is not that internationally competitive. Is that right? Very much so. There's, you know, there's a famous saying, right? culture eats strategy for breakfast and that is very much the case in china and chinese football but there's there's also another there's another um dynamic which which i only became aware of because of of my unusual kind of experience when when i came to china i went to watch the local team simply because i wanted to to just do something which i regarded as normal which was go and watch a football game so when i did i thought okay this is going to be interesting i thought i, I actually extremely naively thought that i would this is my way to kind of blend in with local people and kind of you know, you know, <laughs> you know like uh, when in rome do as the romans do but, yeah. but actually <laughs> actually i actually gathered a lot of attention and people would say oh this is a foreigner in the game I, I was by no means the first foreigner ever to go to a chinese football game but <laughs> i was kind of unprepared for that and it made me think well wait a minute why am i why am i coming at this with like a with like a British mindset. I'm not in Britain anymore. Why am I thinking about it that way? And what I realized was in time was that there's so many assumptions which I had about football because I grew up in a football country. Like I grew up in I grew up in Dunfermline. So like Dunfermline's is a, is in mm-hmm. Fife. It's historically it was very much as lot as there was shipbuilding, there was like a there was coal mining, um and there's a very kind of strong working class background to, to football in general and, and part of the Scotland I'm from which is the same in quite a lot same in the west of Scotland too but it's extremely integrated into, into society and it's so integrated that you don't realise it until you go out and you see a different football environment so basically people in your football countries they don't even understand themselves why how football develops because in these countries it just does it's like I give an example. So, if someone asks you, say, if you've had conversation with British friends, and let's just say someone asks you in Chinese, so someone said, "How would you say this in Chinese?" and I bet you have said to them, oh, "I don't know. You just do." Because this happens to me all the time. It's like my wife says to me, "Like how she's she's, she's Chinese." She says, "Cameron, why do you, why do we say this in English?" I'm like, "I don't know. You just do." Because you grew up, I grew up with English. I grew up speaking it. I can't explain why it is. And the same. That same thing happens in football too. It's like I come to China. People say, "Why? Why is um? Why? Why is football culture so strong in in the UK?" Yeah. I'm like, I, I don't know. It just is. 
But Cameron, can I say, I, I really appreciate that point. It's like the air that you breathe is the, you know, if you're a fish, is the water that you swim in. But the, the problem, one, one, can I, if I can just briefly challenge that, Cameron, you've got a blog about football. You, you try to look at it from a relatively analytical, journalistic perspective. So that's why people are asking you these questions. Yeah, it's, it, yes, absolutely. But it's like, China's like an onion, right? You pull back the layers, there's more and more and more and more. And you just, it's, it's intellectually stimulating and, and, and um, there's just no wrong or right, right or wrong answer, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Can I follow up on that cultural point then? Because, mm. you know, what is the next question then? When, if we say it's going to be culture, what does that tell us? Where do we go from there? Because is it just the case that some countries are football countries and some countries are not football countries? You know, that seems to me a bit bizarre to say that, you know, it's something in Chinese culture that just doesn't click with football. There must be things where a sport comes in and it's totally adopted or totally loved. I mean, football, right, has been that way for a lot of countries across the world. So what's the upshot, basically, if we say that China doesn't have the same football culture? Why doesn't it have that? Isn't it cyclical just to say, no, parents don't want it because surely parents don't want it because the football team is not very good and that's just cyclical right well no that, that's an excellent question to clarify my, my, my argument i'm not saying china is inherently incompatible with football and i'm not saying chinese culture is incompatible with football i'm saying that the conditions to develop chinese football to the point it needs to be at are extremely challenging so for example basically every kind of key point you need to have in place to develop a good football culture is, is very difficult in China. For example, just simple things. For example, Shanghai, there's no way to play. In land, the value is extremely expensive and pitches are expensive. It's difficult just to play a game. Then there's a top-down nature of how China operates. So basically in China, a lot of the time, people are just, it's difficult to just make something happen at a ground, at a ground level. Um, it's almost like you need permission to do it. So if you're, again, if you're in the UK, you can just go to a park, you can put down some jackets and you can kick a ball about and that's it, you play. Mm-hmm. If you're in China, for one, you probably can't find a park. If you can't find a park, it's like, well, can you play there? Uh, maybe they did Bao'an, you know, the, security, the, the park um, rate, um, the park warden's going to come along and say, guys, you can't play football here or it's not allowed or something like this. There's just so many little things which just don't create an open environment for just playing football and then there's the kind of i think i think actually the biggest problem the biggest thing they could do is just put the focus on a domestic league but the domestic league basically functions as a vassal for the national team so for example uh, i think it was Mm. a few years ago there was the cfa announced that they were going to hold a training camp for players who were under 25 and this this was basically going to be a china b team in other words players who were being considered for the national team the national squad but maybe they were not quite there yet but the problem was they held this training camp i think six weeks before the season or a month before the the, the chinese super league season finished so a lot of the top clubs were deprived of their best players now that illustrates that for the Chinese FA, all they really care about is the national team's success because China's just so top down. I like guess it's, it's just the fortunes of the club sides are just completely con- inconsequential. Um, and not only was that wrong from a full development point of view, but it's also actually illegal according to um, FIFA's statutes because FIFA 
has um, international windows which determine when national associations can call up players from clubs. And this training camp was was taken out of, uh, was, was not during one of those windows. So basically, you had clubs, you're asking Chinese fans to say, okay, spend your money, buy season tickets, support your local club. But then when your local club, who you've emotionally invested your money and your time in, and you're, you're, you're really into it, you're excited by it, you're, it's representing your city, you're really passionate about your club. Oh, by the way, you guys need to win this game tomorrow to win the league, but sorry, we're taking away your best player to go to a training camp. So there's no awareness at a top level of the consequences of top-down top down decisions like that. And maybe there is awareness, maybe they don't care, but they just don't seem to fully understand the, the repercussions of these type of decisions. Is it something similar to that at play as well when we look at why um, Chinese football hasn't got better despite the government saying that it wants Chinese football to be better? You know, I, it's been reported, for example, that Xi Jinping has talked about uh, China becoming a football superpower. There's this kind of long-term development plan to put in more pitches, have more training, encourage it more in schools. But, you know, that was eight years ago and it doesn't seem to have really changed China's performance. So is is it that kind of top-down culture, also why you don't think that has worked? Xi Jinping, given his personal support to football, was probably the worst thing could have happened. Because it basically means that when you have... The way power works in China is that, as as you know, you basically do what you do do to make your superior happy. When you have the top guy saying, I want to make China a significant force in world football by 2040 or whenever it was... You get all these guys in the system, these, uh, you know, ganbu, uh, the cadres, the party apparitioniks. They think, oh, uh, the big boss wants China to be good. I'm going to get myself involved in football and try to make a difference and show. So you get all these people involved who don't know anything about football. They don't have football's best interests at heart. And they certainly don't care about anything other than what they think will get them ahead in their political career. So that's that's basically how China works. And so from that point of view, the government support has been very detrimental and it's not black and white. I mean, of course, that there was a there was a time when it looked like the amount of money which was going into the sport would have some kind of side, positive side effect. I was thinking that for a while it looked like it was going to make Chinese football look more respectable in the eyes of Chinese people. So therefore, people might be more motivated to let their kids play and devote themselves to it. But that's not happened. And as we know, the financial support for Chinese football was very much diminished. So we're kind of back at square one in, in many ways. Yeah, I mean, that that's really the story of all Chinese organisations formal and informal I think basically the culture of the top down of of people pleasing your immediate line manager across so many different fields not just not just football and Cameron just finally then you know how do you feel about the state of the sport in China now then because a few years ago you, you took a sabbatical from writing your blog and when you came back you explained why you'd taken that sabbatical and said that you were pretty disheartened by what you saw in Chinese football you had this really good line I thought which is that Chinese football is never about football do you feel differently now how, how do you feel about the state of things today it's, there's no way there's no easy way to answer that question um cognitive like Chinese football being a Chinese football observer or, or fan or follower what have you it's really it's the ultimate cognitive dissonance you you want to just enjoy the football with your friends you want to go be part of the local community you want to you know get, i mean football is enjoyable to watch even if 
regardless of the standard. I'm I'm the kind of guy who who go and watch a football game anyway. But the more emotionally invested you get in it, of course, the more difficult it is to overlook the shortcomings. The more difficult it is to 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 just forget about the the, the downsides. I, you know, and some of the things I've seen in Chinese football in eighteen years is is pretty eye opening. I mean, fans back home might say, "Oh, the referee's biased," or "We've signed this player and he's, he's rubbish." But honestly, <laughs> compared to Chinese football, the guys back home have, have got it pretty pretty well. It's it's very it's very back home. It just seems very simple, and there's there's not really anything untoward going on back home. But here, there could be things which happen which uh, which 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 should not happen. It's difficult to overlook that. I had a really difficult experience a few years back. There was a player who, playing for Shanghai Shenhua, he basically fixed the match. The end of 2013. When he fixed the game, the, the goalkeeper of Shanghai Shenhua was a player called Wang Dali. He was a, very much an outspoken character. And he actually complained to the Chinese media, the Chinese sports media. He said something like, um, the fans can see it, they're not stupid. There's some very irresponsible team members in our team. So it was very obvious that someone in the team had had uh, fixed the game. And of course, this was never spoken out loud. But there was also, and the Chinese media even talked about it, they even quoted a, an Italian media report which said that the game was a Shanghai Shenhua against, it was a Guangzhou Fuli. Um, this game had tripped a suspicious betting alarm in Italy. So it was something which was actually reported externally as well. Um, but anyway, to cut a long story short, the perpetrator of this match-fixing action he not only continued to play at the club, but a few years later, he was presented on the pitch with a jersey with his name on it and the number 100 on the back to commemorate his 100th appearance for the club. So when I saw that, I was just like, it was just so difficult to to, to accept because you, you can put up with a lot of things which you think, okay, so we're in a different country, things are a bit different. Let's not be too judgmental. Let's just, you know, and focus on the game. But when you see the official, the official side basically condone it, that makes it really difficult. Um, and I had a little period away for the, I think I, I gave myself a stadium ban for a few games, but then I thought, okay, fine. It is what it is. Um, but from a, a more broad perspective, I mean, for me, it's part of my life. Um, football is still a universal language. It's still a great way to, to meet people, it's a great way to to contact to, to come in contact. For example, we have like a fan group. I mean, there's guys in our group. They're they're party members. I mean, you don't when you when you're sitting there, you go to the restaurant or pub before the game. You have a beer. You, you're not thinking, oh, you're in the CCP. Oh, I'm I'm not going to talk to you. You don't think that. You think, okay, we're we're going to we're going to watch the game today, and that's what it should be about. We need this more than ever. The world now is is really divided. There's there's people who refuse to talk to each other because they have different ideas or different opinions. So for me, football is a way to bridge people together. It's a way to to overcome the difficulties through like a common shared love. It sounds like a cliche, but it's true and it works. So for that reason, I'm still very much dedicated towards that. And I think, as I said, we need it now more than ever. That's a lovely note to end on. Cameron Wilson, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thanks very much. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast@spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening, and join us again next time. Bye.